Welcome to the Complexity Premium Podcast from Coolabar Capital. Each episode, we will take you through how we deconstruct modern investment problems. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. It's Ying Yan Cheng from Coolabar Capital. I'm a Portfolio Management Director. And you also have with you Christopher Joy. Very, very excited. Our first podcast. Uh, I'm a Portfolio Manager at Coolabar and also the co-chief investment officer. So February was a very interesting month, particularly for us and our markets. Chris? Yeah. um, In February, we saw a pretty strong performance um, across most credit sectors. So the floating rate note index was up uh, a particularly strong 0.43%. To put that in context, the RBA cash rate only returned 0.12%. So that was one of the best uh, months we've seen for FRNs in quite some time, driven by very strong performance from the major bank senior bonds. Uh, In February, we, however, did see the hybrid market um, suffer a little in the face of two large new hybrid issues, one from NAB and another from Macquarie. In total, um, they've pumped out about $2.7 billion of new supply onto the ASX. And as a result, you see quite a lot of churn. So people selling hybrids on the ASX to buy the new deals. And in total return terms, the hybrid index was down uh, 0.23%. Pretty modest in the scheme of things, particularly given... The hybrid market actually had quite a robust 2018 and it had a very, very strong um, December and a very strong January when the index was up probably north of 1.6% in total return terms over those two months. So as you said, Chris, NAB and Macquarie issued hybrids in February. We did quite a lot of analysis on that. Yeah, that's right. Um, so we had NAB issue, NAB PF, which was a new 7.25 year <clears throat> additional tier one capital hybrid uh, with a shadow S&P rating of double B plus. The first new major bank hybrid deal we had seen since November last year, uh, and it was replacing uh, a maturing $1.5 billion hybrid that NAB was set to repay on the 20th of March. The new deal, we had fair value for that security, uh, NAB PF at 3.75% above three-month BBSW. That's the bank bill swap rate, which is around 2%. NAB were offering to pay a pretty attractive margin of 4% above BBSW. Um, And if you can negotiate rebates on the sales commissions that brokers are paid, you can actually improve that margin very substantially. Uh, So we participated in the deal. Uh, We had a 25 basis point new issue concession, plus uh, the rebates, uh, which made it quite attractive The deal was interesting because we also had Unisuper participating with what was reported to be a cornerstone bid of around $200 million. And um, 
there was, I think, questions at the time regarding how the deal would perform given the looming federal election. Uh, our view was that that's relatively well priced at the time. You were getting 60 basis points in extra spread above BBSW um, relative to what hybrids were paying um, in January 2018 prior to the ALP's announcement that it would not allow non-taxpayers, so people who don't pay tax, to claim cash refunds from the ATO uh, if they were to receive franking credits on an investment. I think Morningstar's analysis was that this affected, in theory, up to 10 to 20% of investors. We certainly observed large selling of hybrids between March last year and May last year, and spreads blew out 100 basis points, or about one percentage point. Um, and as a result, we felt you were getting appropriate compensation for that Labor Party victory. The Macquarie hybrid was also, I think, uh, interesting. I published a fairly detailed analysis of that deal on Livewire. It wasn't as much of a laydown down as the NAB hybrid. Um, firstly, it wasn't pricing um, at a big chunky concession to the fair value curve. So we actually had fair value at about 4.3% above bank bills and Macquarie was proposing to pay 4.15% above bank bills, so actually less than our um, fair value uh, mark. Secondly, it carried a credit rating that was two notches below the major bank hybrids. Uh, so double B minus because it's being issued by Macquarie's group entity, not Macquarie Bank. Um, on the other hand, it didn't have a, a common equity T1 capital trigger at 5.125%. So major bank hybrids, if the bank's equity ratio falls from today, um, they're sitting around 105 to 11% down to uh, 5.125%. The hybrids are automatically converted into ordinary shares diluting down um, shareholders, but you end up holding equity. Uh, Macquarie's uh, hybrid doesn't actually have a capital trigger, which is interesting. It didn't have the support of rolling into a new maturity, so it wasn't replacing a maturity, unlike the NAB deal. Um, and the new money uh, demand was significant, meant that uh, Macquarie printed $750 million in this security, uh, which was called MQGPD. But it's actually quite a large deal. Um, and that's why we saw the hybrid market uh, yingers really suffer in February a little with those total returns being uh, off slightly. Uh, we, on a bottom-up basis, had fair value at 3.96% uh, above BBSW. When I say on a bottom-up basis, what I mean is we're actually modeling Macquarie's assets, liability, leverage, volatility. We're projecting its probability of default on this specific security and uh, making assumptions about recovery rates. So at 4.15%, it just made sense on a bottom-up basis. Um, if you could negotiate rebates on the sales commissions that brokers receive who are selling the product, it's actually possible to get the spread up to 4.3%. What made it interesting was that, and I again go through this in my live wire, piece is that Macquarie's hybrids aren't uh, franked uh, very much compared to <coughs> compared to 
compared to uh, normal major bank hybrids. And that means they have high cash yield. So MQGPD paying a 5.28% cash yield is actually the highest in the market. And it actually looks cheap if you ignore franking compared to um, the current Macquarie fair value curve for hybrids. If we look at existing Macquarie securities, like MBLPA, MQGPB, and MQGPC, um, we had the fair value curve for Macquarie for this new 7.5 year deal, slightly longer than NAB 7.25 year deal, at 5.02% in cash yield terms. Yet it's paying, as I mentioned, 5.28%. So it looked cheap on that basis. A final set of analysis we did was we looked at Macquarie's US dollar hybrids and it looked expensive on that basis. We did end up participating, um, but our exposure was very modest. So one of the things that I hear a lot of people talk about is high yield bonds uh, versus ASX, Australian listed hybrids. But my concern there often is just with respect to the fact that you're just not comparing apples to apples. You're really comparing apples to oranges. Do you want to explain a bit about that? Yeah, Ying, is that an interesting question um, and observation because I think you're right. Um, they're definitely different sectors with different return and risk attributes. I've also published a piece on this on Livewire recently um, entitled Hybrids versus High Yield. So there's quite a few differences. Uh, most major bank hybrids are rated double B plus, um, just below investment grade, which is triple B minus, one notch below. Um, in fact, prior to May 2017, Aussie major bank hybrids were um, triple B minus. So they were investment grade. High yield is technically defined as anything that's rated below that threshold, so below triple B minus. If we look at the Bloomberg Barclays Global High Yield Index, um, the average rating in that index is B plus. So that's a significant three notches below double B plus and four notches below triple B minus. I think that's one key difference. Another key difference is, I think a lot of Aussie investors, uh, Yingers, are familiar with the major banks. Uh, they have their deposits with them, their home loans with them. Um, normally know folks who work with these companies. They're probably not familiar with the hundreds of many smaller companies um, that have much higher risk that make up the global high yield market. And that can be a good and bad thing. I definitely think high yield has a really important role to play in portfolios. But you've got to also understand the risks um, that you're taking if you're chasing those returns. In 2018, I think it's interesting because um, the biggest current Aussie high yield market actually is the hybrid market. As I mentioned, um, you know most hybrids are rated in in the double B band, so they're technically now classified high yield. Um, and last year, on a gross basis, they returned 4.9%, smashing the investment grade floating rate note market, because most hybrids are also floating rate. So the Osbond FRN index in 2018 did 2.3%. And the ASX hybrid market also um, significantly outperformed the equity market 
which was down 3.5%, including dividends. Um, another key difference, I think, uh, with hybrids is the volatility. So one of the things we did was we took um, the biggest independent Aussie hybrid index we could find, which is the Solactive Index, um, which is a German company that basically tracks on a market cap weighted basis all ASX hybrids. And that index goes back to early 2012. It's a good seven year window because it has many credit shocks, big blowouts in spreads in 2012, June 13, um, throughout 2015, February 2016, and then again uh, in 2018. And on the chart that I have in my live white piece, you can see I've mapped the Selective Hybrid Index versus the Barclays Global High Yield Index. One of the things that stands out, Yingers, is the volatility. So that red line, which is the High Yield Index, is actually about twice as volatile as the hybrid market. Um, and so the volatility of the global high yield index is 5.7% per annum. The volatility of the ASX hybrid market is 2.8%. Uh, and you can see where the markets perform uh, well and where they experience headwinds. So in 2015 particularly, both markets um, had a tough time. The hybrid index went sideways. The high yield market <coughs> suffered some pretty steep losses. And then in 2018... Um, the hybrid market actually did pretty well, but the high yield market had a torrid time. One of the most important things I think people need to understand, though, which is a real danger when looking at global high yield, is hedging. So normally, when you look at a high yield product in Australia, it'll be hedged into Aussie dollars. And according to CBA, since 1999, if you've if you've taken US high yield bonds and hedge them back into Aussie dollars, you've just by happenstance uh, improved your return by about 4% annually through the hedging. It had nothing to do with the high yield bonds. And that was because over that time, the RBA cash rate was much higher than the Fed funds rate. Now what's happened is the Fed funds rate, which is at 2.5%, is much higher than the RBA cash rate, which is 1.5%. What that means is if you're taking US high yield bonds and hedging them into Aussie dollars, rather than improving your returns by 4% annually, hedging is actually reducing your returns. So I think it's very important that if you're thinking about high yield, you need to start by looking at the bond returns on an unhedged basis. You wanna really drill into their true risk and return features and then you want to turn your mind to hedging and understand will hedging increase those returns or will hedging detract from the returns. In the past, they've enhanced them. I think going forward, they will detract from them. Uh, and this is not obvious because I've seen high yield um, portfolios and you look at the track records and they'll say these are the Aussie dollar returns. Uh, and there will be this tiny footnote, which is referencing the fact that they're hedged into Aussie dollars, so they're not actually pre presenting the unhedged returns. So one of the things that we've paid particular attention to recently has actually been the IMF's latest analysis into the banks, the Australian banks in particular. 
Um, and what they actually found was that a 30% decline in Aussie house prices combined with a 10% drop in economic growth, you know, simulating a recession similar to that experienced by the US during the GFC, would actually not be enough to force the bank's capital ratios down to regulatory minimums or, you know, make them convert, you know, some of those bank hybrids that Chris spoke about earlier um, into equity. Chris, do you want to elaborate on that? Yes, Ying, as the IMF's assessment of Australia's financial system stability was, I think, very important because it was an independent uh, validation of a recent APRA stress test of the banks. Uh, the IMF ran a very similar scenario to APRA. So the 30% drop in house prices, the huge recession, uh, blowouts in credit spreads, and so on. And it basically arrived at the same conclusions. So we saw the CT1 equity ratios drop from around 10.5% to a little above 7%, crucially way above that 5.125% equity level where bank hybrids get converted into shares. Now, some might think, well, you're picking up cheap equity at that point in time, but that is definitely one of the key default risks that hybrid holders face. So I think the first takeaway was um, it backed up APRA's analysis that it had recently published. And you know, to APRA's credit, it's forced the major banks to boost those CT1 ratios since 2014 by about 50%. <coughs> In total, there's been you know, 30 to 50 billion of additional equity sourced, and this protects all securities that rank above ordinary shares in the capital structure, hybrids, T2 bonds, senior bonds, and most importantly for APRA, the depositors. It's also, I think, a very significant improvement over APRA's 2014 stress tests when APRA actually found that a similar scenario, so a, a 91 recession uh, on steroids with massive declines in house prices would have forced bank CT1 ratios down to levels that would have in turn triggered hybrid conversions into equity. So that means obviously those um, CT1 thresholds around 5.125%. So one of the very topical themes with respect to bond investors right now is APRA's TLAC consultation process. And in particular, one interesting development here was a French bank, BNP Paribas, recently issuing a five-year non-preferred senior bond or otherwise known in the market as tier three um, bond last month to Aussie investors. And they raised about 475 million Australian dollars uh, at a cost of just 1.75% above the bank bill swap rate. Now, the government's financial system inquiry expressly recommended APRA consider this type of T3 product. And that has actually become global best practice to ensure that, you know, banks can source TLAC capital in the lowest cost and most liquid manner possible Chris, do you want to expand a bit more about that? Yeah, Yingers, I thought it was interesting um, because, as you say, uh, BNP has come to the local market. We've seen quite a lot of Tier 3 issuance, um, a lot of non-preferred senior issuance. For me, 
I was fascinated to see that they could raise almost 500 million at only 175 above BBSW. APRA has published a consultation paper on TLAC in November. It's now very constructively engaged in conversations with all stakeholders. But I think what this demonstrates is that if the major banks were to raise their TLAC shortfall, which we estimate is going to be somewhere between uh, $80 and $90 billion, if they were to use a non-preferred senior product, certainly in Australian dollars, they would be issuing inside BNP. So if, ish, if BNP is issued at 175 over, you'd expect the majors to issue at circa you know, 150 over. Their non-preferred senior products would also be similarly rated, we believe, in the A band, particularly if they get um, uh, upgrades to their S&P rack ratios, their risk-adjusted capital ratios, uh, which we think they will. And at 150 over BBSW, that's about one and a half times the cost of their current senior bonds. But <clears throat> crucially, uh, miles cheaper than their current tier two bonds. If they try to raise uh, their TLAC shortfall through tier two, they'll be paying, we believe, and you know we've surveyed a whole range of global market makers and buy side investors, and we think they'll be paying, and global investors think they'll be paying somewhere between 250 and 300 over BBSW. So more than 100 basis points on top of what they pay um, via a non-preferred senior product. It's also crucial to understand that non-preferred senior or tier three carries a higher rating than tier two or subordinated bonds. It sits higher in the capital structure um, and it's classified as senior. Now, some people might say, well, why senior, given that it is actually subordinated to traditional senior bonds? But it's all a matter of relative perspective because traditional senior is actually subordinated to depositors and covered bonds. It'll be senior to tier three. And tier two and tier three will be senior to tier two, but junior to senior. Um, as far as global investors are concerned, tier three is senior. And that means there is literally orders of magnitude more capital and capacity to fund tier three than there is in tier two. And when we ran the numbers um, over the last 12 months, there's been over $400 billion of tier three issued globally, but only about $40 billion of <coughs> tier two issued. So I suspect that APRA is probably not going to move on the quantum that the banks need to fund that is the TLAC shortfall, will probably stay at 4 to 5% of risk-weighted assets or roughly 80 to $90 billion um, over the next you know, five to 10 years, depending on your balance sheet growth assumptions. But I think it probably makes sense for APRA to offer the bank's flexibility as to how they fund it. You can't really turn around as Australia you know, our bonds only represent 3% of the global bond market and demand that <clears throat> we can double the global supply of tier two um, just because we want it. I just don't think that's possible. I mean, the other key point here is that by creating a 7% sleeve of tier two, so that would be the 2% current tier two sleeve as a share of a bank's risk-weighted assets, 
or a piece of the capital structure and uh, you know multiplying that up to 7% of uh, risk-weighted assets Aussie banks would have far and away the biggest tier 2 exposures in the world as a share of their assets and you'd actually be embedding in their capital structures effectively a tremendous financial instability risk because they've got to constantly refinance or replace that tier two as it matures. It's not obvious to me that they can issue long dated tier two. Um, I don't think there's a big market for um, tier two with tenants greater than 10 years. Maybe in the US you'll occasionally see a, a couple of very long dated trades, but I don't think there's any chance on God's earth you could fund 80 to 90 billion dollars of that stuff. So in stress market conditions, we know that T2 shuts, it's impossible to fund. Or if you do try and fund much, you might get a few hundred million dollars away at incredibly wide spreads. So global hedge funds will, I think, try and attack this vulnerability by shorting uh, the major banks' global T2 securities and it's just not practically possible. Um, the financial system inquiry requires APRA to uh, conform with global best practice on TLAC. The government accepted that recommendation, has instructed APRA to implement it. And the FSI also recommended that APRA didn't put the banks at a competitive disadvantage in global funding markets <clears throat> in um, cost and capacity terms. So. I think BMP is an important precedent and it really paves the way for an Aussie non-preferred senior market. So Chris, just to round up, I mean, in terms of credit markets, what we're seeing right now is that we're seeing major bank senior paper, the operating company paper that you spoke about earlier, is still quite bid. Uh, The technicals are very supportive there. What we've noticed is that the Aussie banks are unlikely to issue further Aussie dollar paper this half of their financial years. And at the same time, we've seen, you know, the likes of Westpac and CBA issue US dollar bonds offshore. So that definitely does seem to be the trend and it's much more favorable from a hedging perspective. So the technical supply picture looks very constructive for major bank senior spreads. Major bank sub spreads um, are very well bid. Um, They've crunched in since last November in particular, and we've noticed in the market that there is a very strong both institutional and retail bid there. Uh, McDonald's was definitely uh, quite a bit of a highlight for amongst the institutional uh, bond community. Uh, It's been very rare that um, we've had a US corporate come for some time. The last deal from memory was actually General Motors Finance, uh, but before that AT&T and Verizon. Now, Kangaroo deals are often quite well bid, uh, especially corporates, but it has seemed that despite printing quite a large book, that bond actually hasn't, you know, performed as well. And Chris, do you want to speak a bit about AMP? Yeah, AMP announced a US dollar roadshow for a bond issue, but then pulled the deal apparently because there's going to be some negative rating action from the credit rating agencies. We've been um, negative on AMP for quite a long time because of the vertical integration risks. I think I wrote in the AFR you know, that the current business model doesn't have a reason for being and it should be um, 
carved up into pieces and uh, the individual parts sold. I think uh, more generally I'd agree with your sentiments. I mean, Major Bank Senior has been um, very, very strong because it's not bailable and there's been a shift away from that TLAC paper at the margin into what you refer to as that OPCO or operating company paper um, that ranks higher in the capital structure. And that is crucially repo eligible. I think people were really valuing um, the liquidity of those securities and we have uh, heard of uh, Taiwanese and other Asian balance sheet investors rotating out of TLAC paper into non-balanceable, repo-eligible senior, um, a dominant issue of which is, of course, the big four. On the US dollar market, uh, we actually participated in one of those transactions from uh, CBA and Westpac. Um, and I think you're right. Uh, that market has reopened. Is definitely um, a, a viable option, and on a hedged basis, swap back into Aussie dollars. It's still a little more expensive than the local Aussie dollar market. Um, so that paper is swapped back into Aussie dollars, still trading a little wide of Aussie dollar paper, but um, the differential has, as you know, has compressed dramatically. Um, you mentioned major bank sub. It's interesting because there was, I think, post-APRA and uh, their paper in November, we saw um, T2 spreads blow about 50 wider. Uh, we quantified about 33 basis points. That effect was as a result of that consultation paper, so stripping out the market beta. And I think over December and early January, the bid was really a retail bid or a mid-market bid uh, and a private bank bid. But I think, as you mentioned, more recently, we've seen real money and insto investors start to pick up that paper. And I think that is because as the market consensus has swung around to the fact that the only viable option here is um, a non-preferred senior or tier three solution. Um, I guess the only other things that we're seeing is still a strong bid for RMBS. Um, we exited RMBS in February 18. Since that time, spreads have moved considerably wider um, across all tranches. But I think that Japanese bid um, that we've talked about a lot internally is still long and strong. And we've seen some jumbo deals from the banks, um, which is interesting given that house prices, house prices nationally have fallen uh, across the five capital cities about uh, 9% peak to trough uh, since their circa October 2017 high. And as house prices fall, the only thing protecting RMBS is those homes, the collateral. So the LVRs are increasing quite sharply. We've seen dramatic increases in LVRs in the recent you know, 2018 RMBS issues, particularly significant increases in the bonds exposure to um, home loans with LVRs above those 80 and 90% thresholds that investors tend to focus on. Uh, We've also documented a consistent increase in RMBS defaults. We developed the world's first hedonic index for RMBS defaults. This is a regression-based, compositionally adjusted uh, index of arrears. 
that controls for the volume of RMBS issuance, uh, LVRs, and the geographic weights in the pools. And we've seen a trend increase in arrears since 2014. This is um, quite different to the S&P spin index, which is kind of seen uh, or reported flat or arrears that have moved sideways since circa 2014. But our um, hedonic RMBS arrears index does correlate very nicely with the RMBS, sorry, the RBA um, default data that it publishes in the um, uh, Financial System Stability Review. or a recommendation and should not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit the moneysmart.gov.au website to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.